Let us pray. Most awake and most living God, we ask that you be in this moment, God, that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Lord, let them be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight, Lord, that the words that I may preach this morning may have life and move from my mouth into the ears of the listeners that there may be power in the midst of it. God, we ask all of these things in your son Jesus' name. Together we pray and say, amen. Good morning. Um, I just want to give a, um, a message to say, I come from the preaching tradition where the congregation talks back to me. <laughs> so if you at all feel moved to say an amen or a hallelujah in the midst of the sermon, feel liberated to do so. Now, if you don't, I understand. That means you didn't agree with it, but I'm okay with that. But if you feel <laughs> so moved, um, please go ahead and do that. Um, this morning, I will attempt to preach and teach with a thought in mind, a doxological interruption. The scripture says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. There are many forms of isolation that span the breadth of the human experience. For many, we encounter isolation at an early age on the playground in schools that we attend as youth. We know how isolation and that feeling of aloneness can be when perhaps you were the last person picked for the kickball team or the last person chosen for a game. Such an encounter with isolation complicates itself maybe a little bit more in the teenage years as one has to navigate the pitfalls of adolescence being a part of the in crowd, hanging with the cool kids and striking out on one's own and being comfortable with oneself can actually cause moments of isolation here and there. The, the cold, hard reality of isolation, especially the part that's not so pleasant, often occurs through the emotion of abandonment. These emotions of isolation and, and abandonment, they are not always fleeting, but can seem to become a part of your being knowing just exactly what it means when somebody leaves you, somebody dies and there's nothing you can do about it. The death of a parent can certainly be a blow to the personal spirit that forces a lot of questions towards God. It can involve raging against the heavens, demanding an answer. Now, whether an answer comes or not, there can be a moment of sheer isolation that can find itself creeping into your personal space. Recognizing that isolation is not just a physical state of being, uh, many also know and encounter isolation as a psychological mindset. On the one hand, one's body can be forced into isolation by an outside force, or the times that an individual of their own volition can self-isolate themselves. You understand the self-isolation that comes in the form of a moment of escaping for a vacation, going out by yourself, or just simply going out to clear your head just to get a little bit of air. However, the psychological isolation is something over which the individual usually has sole control. In the cult classic movie, anybody seen the Shawshank, the Shawshank Redemption? The protagonist, Andy, he's in jail for a crime that we're really not sure whether he committed it or not. He's befriended by Morgan Freeman's character, who's simply known as the color red. So Andy, who works for the warden, receives a donation from the, for the prison library, and it includes the LP, the, the vinyl record, 
recording of The Marriage of Figaro, and Andy decides to play it over the prison loudspeaker. And of course, he gets in trouble for it, and it lands him in solitary confinement. Now, when Andy gets out of solitary confinement, he's sitting down, he's talking to Red. Red asks him, how did you survive two weeks in the hole? Andy says he remembers that moment that the song played, and he was able to play the song over and over in his head. He was able to escape the isolation of the moment in his head. Andy's body was not just imprisoned from larger society, but his body was also placed in solitary confinement, even further isolating himself from people. He was isolated from the rest of humanity, imprisoned by outside forces, but his mind, his mind was able to find liberation in the midst of isolation. We all know Christianity, this thing that we do being followers of Christ, Christianity is based on a man who lived and walked the streets of Jerusalem with a, and walked with a band of men and women who, whom we call his disciples. And they walked back and forth across the Transjordan region on the eastern edge of what we now know as the Mediterranean. See, this Christian tradition was based on a man, this man named Jesus based on Jesus walking up Golgotha's hill, that this walking up the hill isolated him from people who had called for his death, even isolated him from his disciples who were nowhere to be found. This man named Jesus traveled up Calvary's hill, uh, traveled up Calvary's hill and going up there based on trumped up charges, facing the death of crucifixion, usually saved for political prisoners, or at least those who were convicted of a crime in which the state government wanted to make an example of. This Jesus, this one and only Jesus, whom we call the Christ, was the same one who encountered a man named Saul on the road to Damascus to participate in the persecution of followers of the way. Saul was knocked off of his donkey, and as a result of this encounter, had his name changed to Paul. This Christian tradition we know and love dearly existed as a fledgling community of people in the first century trying to figure out whether or not to continue with their traditions and simultaneously trying not to run afoul of the Roman government. What we now recognize as the first century church was a bunch of disparate groups across the entire region, many of whom were meeting in some form of secrecy, telling the story about a man from Galilee who not only healed the sick and raised the dead, but that he himself was a revenant that was crucified, dead and buried, and yet himself had the testimony of resurrection as well. Uh, It is generally agreed that the belief in such a story and aligning oneself with such a radical and, yes, revolutionary Christian tradition in the first century, going around preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, Uh, Doing that is what resulted in a man that we call John the Revelator to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. It was here on this rocky spit of land in the Aegean Sea that John found himself cut off from society, banished from the mainland, and forced to live a life isolated from those in whom he found community. Uh, Isolation is is not fun. It's, It's not a walk in the park, especially if it's been involuntarily forced on you. It is a form of manipulating and mistreating, uh, isolation is a form of manipulating and mistreating humanity when you are forcibly isolated in the way that John was to the island of Patmos. And it is no more egregious than in the way that those from the West African tribes located all the way from the Senegambia region to the Bight of Benin and Biafra were physically dragged from their native homeland and forced to be unwilling participants in the Atlantic slave trade. The isolation from one's native group is an experience that many of us under the sound of my voice just don't have firsthand knowledge. Now, perhaps 
through the lens of history and more of the, and the more contemporary recorded accounts of slaves during the Depression era WPA projects or hearing the modern stories of children that survived the peril of war in foreign countries who make their way to the United States seeking asylum, refuge, or medical care, we can see just what toll it takes on humanity to be disconnected and isolated from everything that is familiar to you. This is why it is all the more curious that this John, in the midst of an epistolary introduction, pauses and offers praise to Jesus as the Christ and the King. To put a fine point on this, John offers a doxological interruption to the general flow of what's considered the natural order of things. Now, conventionally, if an encyclical epistolary is produced, uh, it would follow the traditional ordering found in many of the Pauline epistles, where the introduction is, well, the introduction, uh, stating who the author is, the intended audience, and bringing specific greetings to individuals. Yet it's here in the midst of John's isolated status, the author of this passage decides to take a praise break. Uh, is that not what a doxological interruption is? A dox doxology, as we're about to sing, as, as most of you know well, is a liturgical saying or a hymn that offers praise to God. Seeing as how this particular doxology is not found at the end of a passage, much like Jude's famous now unto him who was able to keep us from falling, rather this doxology is found, uh, found in Revelation, is found in the middle of a passage. It disrupts and, and breaks the continuity of the introduction. So for me, this doxological interruption is nothing more than a praise break. Now, in the African-American Pentecostal worship traditions that still have unprogrammed worship service, invoking the same spirit of Quaker traditions uh, that once encouraged unprogrammed service, there comes a moment in which either the music through, through voice or through instrumentation or even the preaching invokes what's colloquially known as a praise break. So, yea, even on yesterday, as I was attending an ordination service here in Durham, as the group of singers finished singing Milton Brunson's uh, safe in his arms, what could best be described as a praise break erupted in the middle of the service. The drummer hit a beat on the bass drum and the praise break began. It was not programmed. It was not planned. It may not even have been anticipated by the worship leaders, but it happened. To put it succinctly, there were doxological utterances and interruptions that broke out all over the building. So as I interrogate the text here in Revelation and I see where John is, he's on the island of Patmos, knowing where John possibly comes from, knowing John's situation, knowing that it is bleak, knowing that it is perilous, knowing that hope at best may be a distant star far from the reach of attainability, I can't help but ask the question to John, John, how is it that you can offer praise to God in the midst of your isolation? On this Christ the King Sunday, John, I want to know how can Jesus be your Christ and how can Christ be your King while sitting in exile, isolated from everything that is familiar from you? This is not an unfamiliar question for us in the 21st century, no more than it is a familiar question that rings from the halls of temporal antiquity. As I said earlier, isolation can take on many forms, both physically and psychologically. A personal sickness in one's life can isolate you 
from a relationship with God because of that simple question, why, that can form so easily in your head. Watching a loved one suffer under the pain of domestic abuse, uh, all the way to sitting by their bedside, watching them suffer from a debilitating illness, knowing the possible isolation that caregivers may feel, knowing that there are very few people who are able to give to be caregivers to the caregivers. Isolation also occurs in those poor people across the world who are locked out of a system that seems beset on keeping the poor eternally poor, banished from hope for a better tomorrow. Isolation occurs even on college campuses, even as we speak, as black students feel isolated from the collegiate powers that be in response to the defacing of a poster with a racial slur and a noose hanging on campus. So LGBTQ students that feel isolated away from the umbrella of safety that is understood to be protection for all students, even when a direct threat is made on the life of a student. Isolation occurs as citizens are, are feel the net of safety ripped away from them, whether on the streets of Paris. Isolation touched second America of sorts where black and brown bodies live in the fear of police officers or community that experiences isolation from all that is that makes right and good sense in the world when a gunman walks into a movie theater or into a classroom full of kindergartners. How do you offer praise to God in the midst of that? John gives us a hint at how to do that by the first line of the doxology that says, to him that loved us. That's enough for me to be honest with you. To know that even in the midst of this, God still loves us. To know that even when things don't seem to be going the way that they should go, that God still loves us. Paul helps us out when he says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Even looking back to the Old Testament, to people like Job, who, were, who was isolated in a very visceral way, away from everything that he was accustomed to, plucked away from his wife and his children, and to someone like John here in Revelation, who was ripped away from society. Conventional wisdom would dictate that isolation from the familiar should result in an isolation from God, but in both of these cases, Job and John said no. As the story goes, Job consistently stayed in conversation with God, even when God was silent, and it seemed as though God was not listening. So even here on the island of Patmos, John, much like Job, finds a way to stay connected to God. So perhaps if I put on my hat of sanctified imagination, I, I would make the argument that for John, he maintained his connection with God in the midst of his isolation through his knowing and reality and revelation, knowing that God in Jesus Christ still loved him. I would submit for others that there may be many other things that are keeping you tethered to the one who is the one who was and the one who is to come. For you see this doxological interruption uh, acts as a fulcrum point that leverages John's physical isolation with his apocalyptic eschatology. And that's just a fancy way of saying John's revelation. It's in this passage I see John's isolation does not prevent his adoration of God in Christ Jesus and ultimately it provides a particular revelation. This revelation allows us to understand God in yet one more dimension. 
Now, you see, the biblical narrative is complete with names for God and, and, and other names for the Christological manifestation of God in Jesus. And these names have been the direct result of an, an encounter and an experience with God. For example, the writer of Song of Songs knows God as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. The writer Isaiah encountered God as the wonderful counselor, the, the mighty God, the prince of peace, and the everlasting father. Uh, even in Exodus, isolated from everybody else. Ezekiel encountered God as the wheel in the middle of the wheel. The writer of Colossians sees Jesus as the image of the invisible God, and the writer of Hebrews sees him as the author and the finisher of our faith. So it's here in today's passage through isolation and adoration. John shares the revelation of God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is yet to come. Now, for those that pay attention to grammar and understand especially how the English language works to us understanding uh, our reading of scripture, one can't help but recall the story of God's encounter back in Exodus with Moses, uh, as Moses with the burning bush in Exodus. It's at this holy encounter with a bush that did not burn, that God tells Moses that God has heard the cries of the Hebrews and is going to see about them. So God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, Moses, understanding that he needed something else to assure his authority before going to Pharaoh, stands with sandals off of his feet, his toes encrusted in the dust, and he is physically connected to the earth and ground, the same ground that has produced this bush that does not burn. Moses stares directly into the fire and asks one simple question, and who shall I say sent me? Ah, and the voice from the bush simply says, tell them that the conjugation of to be has sent you. I think it is not coincidence that at the end of our biblical canon, we are introduced to this Johannine apocalyptic conjugation of God. If anyone who has taken a foreign language at the introductory level, when you are conjugating just the simple, the simplicity of to be, you already know that one of your first lessons uh, in a foreign language is how to do conjugations. And in conjugating, you learn past, present, and future. You learned it in that order. The past, the present, and the future. But John, John here in Revelation, John does something different. Uh, the first title that he gives to God revealed in Christ Jesus is the one who is present first, the one who was, and then the one who is to come. Uh, it is the isness of Jesus that takes precedence for John. Uh, in the midst of an isolating situation, the isness of Jesus is what allows him to offer up a praise unto God. It's the isness of Jesus that anchors John to have the ability to maintain his sanity in the midst of what is most certainly a mess. Uh, praising God in the middle of one situation may not change the situation, but I stand here and declare it can change you in the situation. David danced out of his clothes, and, and Psalm 150 instructs us uh, that the full, uh, uh, the fullest of available instruments should be used, and also instructs us that everything that has breath ought to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But in none of those uh, instances did the situation fundamentally change, but the individuals uh, in the situation themselves were changed. Why is that? Because I, I just believe, it's in my sanctified imagination, uh, I, because expressing praise 
phrase uh, vocally uh, requires one to psychologically engage in a particular way that allows the various neurological synapses to be created uh, and ultimately it results in a different type of engagement potentially allowing the entire body, the entire mind, body, and spirit to encounter God. Praising God can fundamentally change you in the middle of your situation. Praising God connects you with the divine outside of just the headspace, but begins to work on the heart. The heartstrings are connected to God in a way unique from that of the mind. Uh, praising God removes God from just being an intellectual exercise uh, and engages one for that one engages in for the sake of mental stimulation. But praising God makes God very tangible. Uh, it makes God the one who is and the presentness of God, the essence of Emmanuel, God with us. So I submit to you today, don't be afraid to give God praise even when conventional wisdom says not to. The God who was with you in the beginning, that's the alpha, is the same God who will be with you in the end, that's the omega. The revelation of Jesus that John offers possesses Jesus with you in the present, the right now, and also Jesus in the future, beckoning us to come into an uncertain future with an unassailable hope. No matter what the situation, John's revelation of Jesus gives us this blessed assurance as the one who is to come as a place of refuge and a citadel of hope in a world that has been turned upside down. So for John, this doxological interruption, this praise break acts as a linchpin that holds together his righteous mind connected to the God of love and to the one who was, ever thankful for the one who is, who is providing him the peace that passes understanding, and ever watchful and waiting for the one who is yet to come, for the one standing in the next breath of the moment, ever calling the faithful to step forward and be the ones that we've been waiting for. Amen.